It's episode 112 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Veen. Today on the program is Genevieve Gaudet. She's the director of design for Nava, a firm focused on service design for the public sector. We talk about the power of design to transform the way people experience their government. Genevieve, thanks so much for being on the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm such a big fan. Oh, thank you. Gosh. Uh, <laughs> you know, now look, I was looking at your CV before we got started here. So I know you spent some time working in the New York City mayor's office under Dil, uh, Bill de Blasio, right? And I want to hear about that uh, and the work you did over there. But before we do that, you must be super interested in the current mayor race that's going on in New York, right? Uh, you know, to be honest, I moved to Los Angeles uh, about two years ago mm-hmm. and have gotten a lot more focused on on what we're doing over here oh, on the good. West Coast. I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I'm not following that. No, don't know. be embarrassed. It's like <laughs> local politics is messy. <laughs> you know? It is. It's so messy. Um, you know, I see the occasional Twitter updates go by on my screen and I'm just like, oh, I can't follow this. <laughs> uh, I've, I've been watching. I find it interesting because like I lived for a while in San Francisco and I think New York and San Francisco are very similar in that um, the primaries are what's interesting because yeah. whoever gets the Democratic nomination is going to end up winning inevitably, right? In both of those cities. So uh, it's been, I've been uh, watching a little bit in the New York Times as it's been going and um and uh, it looks like there's going to be some interesting changes. So that's good. I think so. I think we need them. So Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. You uh, are a design director. You, uh, you practice, it sounds like primarily service design. I want to hear all about that. But it'd be great to <laughs> sort of t- trace uh, or connect the dots uh, of your career, <laughs> how you got started in this and, um, and sort of the steps along the way to where you are now. Sure. Well, uh it really starts kind of far back. Honestly, the um, the day that I was set to start college, which was in New Orleans at Tulane University um, in the city I grew up in, New Orleans, nice. great place. Um, the day I was set to start Tulane, Hurricane Katrina devastated the city. Wow. And uh, yeah, and when it opened back up that January, um, there was a severe shortage of medical staff in the city. And so I became trained as an EMT and spent the rest of my college career as a, a pre-med student um, and, you know, full-time EMT in addition to doing my coursework. And uh, so I saw very up close yeah. what happens when there's a, a broken public health system, you know, how that impacts people who live there, um, and sort of the enormous power, the enormous power involved in, in having a functioning system of governance and in being able to provide very basic services to people that kind of keep them, um, keep them healthy, keep their basic needs met and so on. And it really started this whole trajectory where, um, First, I went to, to public health school for graduate school and at the time didn't know, didn't have language for this, but was basically prototyping apps and websites and kind of redoing, you know, a content strategy for for messaging campaigns to make them stickier. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of along the way, found found my professional people who said, oh, you know, there's words for this. These are apps and, you know, you're prototyping things and uh, was able to sort of build up some of those tools of the trade uh, to support what were very, um, you know, bold, but kind of academic ambitions around, uh, you know, around impact and around, around uh, impacting 
people in a positive way and eventually made my way to, to Nava where I am now. That's, um, that's quite a shift from pre-med. <laughs> it was a big shift, but it's, uh, I feel like it comes from the same place, right? There's still that intention of like, uh, you know, what can I, what can I contribute, you know, to our collective well-being, and what can I do? Right, right, right. And so, uh, you then you in between there, you spent some time, like we said at the beginning of the show, uh, in the New York City Mayor's office. I did, yeah. Um, when I uh, right after graduate school, I moved to New York City um, and spent a fair amount of time at um, design studios. Mm. You know, uh, focused again on social impact work. Civic Tech was sort of. Um, just getting its its name around the time then. So, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of, um, I think, identity, at least not for me within that industry yet. But then um, things like uh, Civic Hall started in New York, and I was really drawn into that community and honestly was just very persistent about showing up at events <laughs> and getting people to talk to me and eventually um, a very fruitful conversation with Frank Hebert, who started Open Plans, um, you know, kind of at the beginning of the civic tech, first civic tech wave in the U.S., uh, suggested that I meet a woman named Ariel Kennan, who was trying to start an interesting group in the mayor's office. And when I did, we, we Ariel and I clicked just right away, and I agreed to, to join her in co-founding um, a service design studio for, for Mayor de Blasio. Um, and that turned into, uh, a really, um, you know, just all star team that is there today and they work on, uh, increasing economic opportunity for New Yorkers and, um, you know, improving the public services that, that serve all the folks in New York. And in that context, was that uh, a particular like technological effort? And you mentioned civic tech. I've I've had a couple of people on the show that have you know backgrounds in the U.S. digital service and things like that. Um, so the connection there in New York as well is there a, a, a similar sort of uh, like a group of people working on digital solutions, or was it broader than that? Uh, there's absolutely a group of people working in New York on these things, um, many of whom had connections either to the U.S. Digital Service or to um, Code for America, which has been a long time sort of advocate and incubator for uh, folks who go on to become leaders in the field. Um, and Ariel had been involved with Code for America right. before the mayor's office. So it was certainly at the time still a growing community, but but it was thriving. You know, we'd gotten enough credit sort of as an industry that the mayor was investing in this new team and, and Civic Hall was a growing sort of presence at the time. Yeah, I would say it certainly branched off from that that early days USDS work, but um, was related and had a lot of the, the same characters involved. Right, 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 right. What's always impressed me with that, that, I guess, that group of characters, but also the kind of the movement within government around that was not just... Uh, more of a focus on, uh, I don't know, better user experience or at least user-centered experience, like I think was uh, a novel concept um, mm -hmm. uh, th that happened, let's say, 10 years ago, maybe a little longer, but also sort of trying to transform the way uh, government projects were bid on and sold and and granted and, you know, and things like that, um, trying to say, like, maybe we can make things smaller and faster uh, and and I don't mean this sort of like uh, move fast and break things, but but more like just a, a little bit more transparent. 
Um, and, and to be able to take on maybe smaller projects and accomplish things faster than you would with these enormous government contracts the way they had always been. So I've always found that really interesting, interesting in how it's been transformative. Yeah. Well, I think that, um, in the U S there's this huge spend on technology and government. It's like $160 billion industry. And for this spend, I, there's like an estimated failure rate. I would have to look up the source McKinsey poll somewhere mm. or something um, where those software projects fail at like 93%. Oh yeah. It's outrageous. Time. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're just, they're so, they're so big. It's so complicated. And um, you're right. A lot of, a lot of this work and, you know, even today, you know, I'm continuing to advocate for, for smaller projects, smaller proof points that really build up momentum because there's incredible costs just in terms of, uh, you know, that's the size of the spend of our collective money, but also there's human costs, you know, to having all of these projects fail. And, um, if we can, if we can reverse that first in small ways, it kind of builds the case to have a more transformative approach to, to the way we build these things. Yeah, for sure. Especially if you could, it's so easy to draw the line between the dollars and people getting help from services that they need, right? And those budgets being continuously sort of underfunded while mm-hmm. all of the software or technology projects are failing, you know? Oh, absolutely. Hard, hard to, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, when you think about... Um, you know, just the amount of money we've spent on, say, uh, maintaining SNAP systems, which, um, you know, are managed state to state. So we've got... I'm not familiar with those. Can you tell me SNAP? Yeah. So SNAP is... uh, SNAP, let's see, it stands for the Supplemental Nutrition... uh, I'm going to forget the A program, but it is what used to be called food stamps. Ah, Um, okay. so So it's a way to help mostly families... Um, supplement their their food budgets to buy food each month. And, you know, these systems are maintained state to state. So there are a lot of them, which means there's a lot of contracts out there for these big systems to either be maintained or rebuilt or occasionally improved. But many of them are are quite brittle. They may be old, which is not a bad thing, but they're often quite brittle. And so you'll see situations where a state's website is the website closes every day at five for, yeah, for maintenance, you know, there are these backend systems that maybe all the applications that day have to be sent over to the case management system. And this is such a delicate process that anything incoming might break it. And so the, the only way the the folks maintaining that system can know to manage it is they, they shut the website down. And so that means if you work a job where you can't apply before five, then what are you going to do? It means your family maybe loses out on an opportunity to buy food that month because you couldn't apply in time or it just makes it harder and the human costs kind of pile up um, as a result of these uh, decisions um, and constraints that are entirely, uh, entirely a function of the technology, you know, not usually, um, like because of any, you know, political need or, or actual constraint if we just invested a little bit more in the way this was built. Yeah, for sure. I want to hear more about that in a minute. We're going to take a little break and we'll be right back. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by Discourse. 
Discourse was founded in 2013 by Jeff Atwood from Stack Overflow, Robin Ward, and Sam Safran. It's a powerful, flexible, open-source community platform where discussions are searchable so you can find all the relevant details for your project. The platform is designed with moderation in mind, helping you keep the discussion on track and high value while minimizing the impact of trolls and spam. It integrates with Zapier, Patreon, Memberful, and lots more. I use uh, Discourse almost every day. There's a number of... uh, online communities for electronic music that I like to hang out in and uh, and chat with people. And I think the way uh, Discourse does the conversations uh, is the best I've seen. Uh, it works great on mobile. Uh, and it has this wonderful sort of incentivizing system, badges and things like that, totally controlled by the community, which get way past kind of a lot of the social media of trying to collect likes and things like that. And really kind of encourages some really great behavior. I totally encourage you to check it out. If you want to run your own community on it, this course offers a 100% free 14-day trial. And after that, plans start for $100 a month. Uh, And the folks at Discourse are giving presentable listeners 50% off your first two months after you start your subscription. So it's a great deal. Just go to Discourse.org, use the coupon code RELAY2021 when signing up. That's Discourse.org code RELAY2021 when signing up for 50% off your first two months. All right. So I uh, would love to hear then a little bit about uh, where you are now. You are at a firm called Nava. Uh, It's a public benefits corporation, which is interesting in itself, I think. Um, And uh, as I was looking through the website, part of the values of the company that's listed there really struck me, which was just this phrase, to transform how people experience government. And I just love that uh, because it is uh, it puts together a bunch of things that n- normally don't go together in my head. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the idea of experiencing government, a government, like those services could be actually an experience uh, rather than a, at best a chore, at worst. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> uh, you know, so anyway, um, I'd love to hear a little bit about like what you do there uh, and the approach and, and all of that. Sure. Yeah. And I think, I think folks will say that, you know, the work we do at Nava, I think would be important in any decade, but is particularly important and urgent right now. Um, because, you know, again, um, there have been many polls that support this trust in, in public institutions has eroded to catastrophic lows. And, you know, we see people in the U S in places around the world, are demanding political change. And one of the biggest reasons is that folks no longer believe that their governments are, are working for them. And at Nava, you know, we have a very, we have a very specific domain we operate in, which is helping governments improve their digital services. And, um, within those services, there are, I like to think about opportunities to fulfill small promises, which is, you know, kind of a basic measure of respect. If you need, if you need help filling out a form, you can, you can find someone, you can call someone who's actually going to help you without kind of being bounced from call center to call center. Or, you know, sometimes we're working on programs that fulfill much larger promises. 
like uh, if you've served in the military and you've had a catastrophic injury, um, the VA should be able to make good on on your appeal for a financial benefit. And, and that's one of the programs that we work on at NAVA. Um, so you can get that care when you return to civilian life. And, and if we're able to make good on those promises, we can then build back some of that trust. And what's so cool as a technologist is that there is an opportunity to to be a part of that. You know, it, this is a complicated industry kind of domain to operate in because there is, you know, all this policy, there's politics, but um, there is an incredible point of leverage around uh, just what technology can provide to these services and um, to kind of make it more possible for public institutions to meet people's needs in a, a respect a respectful and humane way. Mm, yeah. So where do you even start on a project like, or, or not a project, but a mission like that, I guess is a series of projects that get bro- broken down into a series of wins that you were, you were sort of mentioning, but fr- from a, uh, yeah, from just like, it, it seems like the problem is enormous. Um, uh, and, and I just wonder, like, you know, how do you, how do you start to break down some of the, the projects that you're working on and, mm-hmm. and get into? Yeah. Um, so we start at Nava by really heavily qualifying any projects we're considering. Mm. I think a lot of firms do this and we're really sure. running through our, our values, our mission, our vision, um, and whether there are uh, forward-thinking government leaders who would be partnering with us on this, you know, this is this is the work I think of a few generations and of many people in it. So you know, we can't be the only ones sort of advocating for this approach. Um, so this is a very heavy qualification process, and then when we do enter into these projects. We are often looking, kind of as you intuited at the beginning of our conversation for opportunities to, to build up some, some quick wins, to build up some credibility and momentum in a project. And so this might look like, you know, really relying on some of the classic tools of our trade as designers, you know, looking for opportunities to prototype and pilot a much better experience, looking for high leverage points of intervention where we can dramatically, you know, improve or speed up um, a critical point in the process. And and then we sort of build out from there. Yeah. You know, in my experience in uh, consulting back years ago, I remember making proposals like that where like, look, let's just start six weeks. We'll do a little update of the login page. Right. And, or for example, and understanding that that particular page touched 15 different departments had, you know, different, whole different technology stacks that were incompatible that were trying to, you know, uh, service just the back end of that one page. And so you could, so it was something that everybody very easily would agree to. Sure. Log a page or whatever. Fine. You know, that's true. It could, could be a little easier to log in. And it turns out that that six week project is actually six or nine or 12 months worth of unpacking and, and just getting to the quick win uh, mm-hmm. uh, uncovers just everything that's going on behind the scenes. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things we talk about a lot at Nava is about, um, how so many of these problems are not technology problems at all. They're communication yeah. problems, they're collaboration issues, you know, between departments or between groups. And you're absolutely right. You know, these projects can surface a lot of that. Um, but when, you know, sort of 
<laughs> continually scoped tighter and tighter, we can find opportunities to, um, you know, maybe allow two of those agencies that were at odds that you were describing to, to actually collaborate together just a little bit and kind of come to their own solution. And as we can create more of that connective tissue, we found that there's an opportunity to build up champions and advocates for this way of working within government. And that's, you know, I think a big part of the long-term change we'll need if we want, um, if we want public services to be built in a much more people-centered you know, in a sort of forward-thinking way. Yeah, you you mentioned the SNAP program, uh, and I saw uh, something you forwarded to me about the the project you did in Vermont, which sounded very much sort of aligned around that strategy. But what struck me about it is, as you were doing the project, was uh, having you as designers presenting to the legislature, right? To to yeah. sort of convince them to go ahead with the project and give it more funding and stuff like that. And I was like, wow, now there's, you know, like designers lobbyist is not something we've covered on this podcast yet. So uh, <laughs> I thought that was super interesting. Tell me a little bit about that. Oh, that was an incredibly fun experience. Um, and again, uh, one of the reasons that project was so successful was because we had uh, Cassandra Madison, um, who at the time was um, sort of director of the Vermont Health Access agency. And she, you know, was kind of our internal champion for, for working in this way, for building things in this way. And she's the one who brought us into those legislative presentations. Um, it was an incredible amount of fun. You know, we, we thought a lot about, you know, what are the, um, what are the kind of, what's, how's, how do we want to tell this story, you know, to, to these senators and to these representatives and what is going to be really compelling. Um, cause at the end of the day, you know, legislatures appropriate money and they are the ones who are kind of signing off on that collective investment and in building technology in this way. And so what we decided to do was, um, you know, we crafted a narrative around what we did and why it was so cool and what the outcomes were, but we also had them, um, on their phones, demo themselves, the little app, that we had built. And, um, that particular small pilot tightly scoped was, uh, to allow Vermonters to upload documents, um, from their phones to send to the state. And this is really important because when you apply for something like food assistance, so SNAP, um, or food stamps, uh, health insurance, help with housing, almost anything, you often have to submit proof of different things like who you are, how much money you make, you know, that your kids are in school, things like that. Um, and in Vermont at the time, uh, you had two options. You could bring those papers in person, which is expensive just in terms of time and labor, um, or you could mail them, which just takes a long time and delays the amount of time um, to actually get your, your application processed and, and the help you need, which is your whole goal and applying for this. And so we built and piloted uh, what's called the uploader. So it's just, it's a very simple app. You upload from your phone. Uh, in the first iteration of it, it just emailed it to your caseworker. Not sexy technology by any stretch. Um, and that's what we, we had these senators and representatives just do it from their phone on their own, you know, many of whom were not super comfortable with their phones. Um, and, and they were able to do it successfully. And I think that was, you know, just a great proof point that, um, with no introduction, no training involved in this technology, you can use this. So can Vermonters, this is a great investment that, um, 
you know, at the time we knew sped up uh, people getting their decisions about their application faster. Um, so uh, it sped it up to four days where before it took nine days, so well over a week. Mm-hmm. And we also found that people were submitting within one day of hearing from the state that, you know, we need proof of your of how much money you make or your address um, compared to like 11 percent of people were able to do that before. So bumping that up to 55 percent just means that one, people can just move through this process so much more quickly. And folks who really do need help, maybe in person, folks who are relying on mail um, and things like that, uh, caseworker time is freed up to really focus on those folks who, for whatever reason, don't want to or can't use technology. That sounds great. And wow, the live demo, super risky. You did it though. (laughs) I was so nervous before that. I, yeah, (laughs) I was giving a presentation about demos the other day and I said, demos are incredibly high risk. We should do them anyway. And that was a time that I really, I really had to commit to that. (laughs) I have have done some live demos uh, in, in my day and always with just a whole room of engineers with their hands like hovering over keyboards, you know, like yeah. uh, waiting for to cut over to the, you know, the third set of servers that we have in backup. And I, um, Absolutely. Yeah. Just hold your breath. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's right. That's right. Well, let's take a little break and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pingdom from SolarWinds. If you have a website, what purpose does it serve? Uh, it might be driving people to your products or collecting sales leads for your company or providing customer service with a contact form. When these critical transactions fail, you lose out on business, not to mention the bad experience for your users. Uh, but there is a solution, and that's transaction monitoring from Pingdom. It, just, it starts at just $10 a month, and transaction monitoring runs checks 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it will re- alert you when cart checkout forms or login pages fail before they affect your customers and your business. Pingdom will notify you the moment there's a failure. They'll send you an SMS or an email or via your favorite apps like Slack or uh, Ops Genie or even PagerDuty. Depending on what's being monitored or the severity of the outage, you can customize who's alerted and how they get the notification. Don't let your users discover a problem with your website. You should be the first to know, and it's super easy to get started. Just go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 30-day free trial with no credit card required. Then, when you're ready to buy, use code PRESENTABLE at checkout. You get a huge 30% off your first invoice. So thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. So I think it's probably been now a couple of years ago we did an episode of this podcast with uh, Andy Lewandowski from the U.S. Digital Service. Do you know Andy? Yeah. Uh, I don't know him um, in person, but I, by reputation. Oh, yeah. Okay, because he's great. You're right. Yeah, he does I've have a, a wonderful reputation. Yeah. Uh, he and I talked about this epic redesign they did of the Veterans Administration website um, that spanned, I mean, it was crazy, thousands of stakeholders and years of navigating government, uh, everything. Like, it was, it was really impressive. Uh, but one of the things he talked a lot about was the challenges of involving users in government projects, right? And um, and he right he want to bring the actual users in to do research, to do validation, to do discovery, and things like that. I'm wondering if you've experienced that challenge uh, as well, or or ways of navigating around it. I have absolutely experienced this challenge before. Um, though I will say that over the last few years, um, increasingly, uh, folks who are running projects for the government, people who are kind of 
um, soliciting, you know, consultants, uh, it is becoming just sort of the expectation and table stakes that we will involve users in our, in our, uh, design process, but it can sometimes be a challenge to really actually make that happen. Um, I found that, uh, compensating folks for their time can be challenging in government, especially if you're working in the public benefit space, because sometimes, you know, there's concerns around like, is this, income that then, you know, they need to claim on their application where we ask them about their income and it, it can really get very involved very quickly. Um, the ways that we've found to manage this are, um, one, to create a sort of testing and recruiting strategy that really helps our government stakeholders feel confident that we are going to, um, you know, recruit a cohort of users that are representative of the the, the population they're trying to reach. So, you know, that we are going to uh, commit to having a diverse and inclusive cohort, I think, you know, kind of helps them and it helps them see like, oh yeah, we're going to get feedback from kind of the full set of, of folks who will be using this. And we can see how that is going to be valuable. Um, and then when it comes to just sort of the, the operations of making that happen, making sure that we are really kind of holding their hand through like, here's how we recruit, here's how we manage, you know, the the list of people, here's what the sessions look like, you know, allowing people to sit in on them and everything um, has been really helpful because it, it it's sort of a weird process. And I think it can feel really risky if the ways that you are accustomed to engaging with constituents is through maybe really spicy op-eds and <laughs> harsh harsh phone calls that get routed in through a senator's office. <laughs> and, you know, um, that that's the reality for some leaders in government is that when they, when they do hear from people, it's, it's, um, that something has gone wrong and, uh, it can be, it, it can be some, some work to, to really get them comfortable with the idea that we were, we will kind of continually engage people and we will hear some of that, but often I found that, um, you know, a, a lot of the the people we, we recruit are, are so excited because no one's ever asked them about their experience trying to get health insurance in the state of Vermont or, you know, applying for leave in, in Massachusetts. And, you know, folks want to tell their stories and it's it's really powerful to to hear them and to allow our stakeholders to to really hear them. You know, that's interesting. That probably gets right down to the core of what you were talking about earlier around uh, people's mistrust in government and uh, dissatisfaction with how things are going, particularly in America, but I don't think it's exclusive to America. But that dichotomy or uh, tension between like the government as them, you know, and and likewise, like my constituents as a bunch of people that are going to scream at me, right? So uh, I better like turn it on and you know be the and be that personality. It's a very different dynamic than what we are trying to achieve with service design and user-centered design and, and co-design and, and all of those things, which is very much being in service of a community. I don't know. That's, that's one of the things that uh, ha- has been a shift for me in, in the past number of years around this idea as, as designers being of service Mm-hmm. And not being like the people who think it up and create it all and the experts, right? I guess that's the alternative. <laughs> but instead saying, I have something to bring to the table to help this community 
who is trying to achieve their own goals, not my goals and not me extracting their goals so I can go build something, but allow them to do so. And, and I have a contribution that I could make as well. Like that's very different. It is really different. And I think that a lot of the tools that we learn um, through, you know, the the practices of user research through, um, you know, people-centered design uh, in, in government, I imagine in other industries, can really be applied to the stakeholders as well. You know, in government, if you are a person, let's say you're a person who works for the government, you survived the launch of the Affordable Care Act, where many states kind of rejiggered all of their Medicaid, Medicaid, uh, Medicaid and health insurance systems. If they built their own exchange, it was incredibly painful for a lot of folks. Um, you know, and you kind of have this experience where engaging with your constituents is a really fraught kind of undertaking, um, you may have learned, maybe not super consciously, that engaging with users and launching technology is terrifying. Right. You know, and your constituents have learned that government technology and processes are not only not to be trusted, but they're sort of, um, they're like adversarial. Um, so you have to go in with your guard up. You really got to keep your eyes out for where you can go wrong. Um, you know, it's like you lawyer your way through this process. And so we've got these two groups who fundamentally do not trust each other. And even if they've like hired us, maybe don't fully trust the the, the process and the approach that we're suggesting. Um, so I think, you know, applying that empathy to where our stakeholders are and kind of meeting them where they are and saying like, okay, well, what is the most important thing here? The most important thing is that we are incorporating the perspective of people who will use this and that we are launching responsibly and incrementally. Like we're iteratively putting something out into the world. And there are a lot of ways to achieve that, right? And there are ways that we can make that that safer and smaller at first and expand it over time, um, kind of for both of those parties. And so I think as a designer in a field like this, you really need to get comfortable with the idea that um, the the way that your your research and your testing and your launch strategy looks on this project may not be like by the textbook exactly you know 100 um instead you're going to need to adapt these tools to achieve those goals um and to kind of meet everyone in the system where they are you know in a way that kind of sets us on the path to that longer term vision yeah yeah no that's great that's that's um yeah, oh, quite a challenge, but still, yeah, no, that's that's wonderful. Um, that's what designers are made for. It's exactly know? that's that's where I was. My head was going. I was like, um, like big, meaty, juicy problem. Wonderful, wonderful. One of the things uh, that I uh, have been struck with in, in myself. So I moved countries a few years ago. I live in the UK. Uh, one of the things that surprised me pleasantly was the degree to which the UK's governments digital presence was so consistent and dare I say good, <laughs> you know, um, like it was, it, it was, it's not to say there's not bureaucracy and you can't you know, find yourself in loops and, you know, things like that. But overall there was just a outrageous consistency. And I know some of the people that were involved, you know, 15 years ago, even 20 years ago that laid some of that groundwork. And I think one of the things, you know, with my own experience, having spent most of my life in America was like, Oh, they don't have States here. Like that's a, that's a big difference in that, like yeah. you can kind of figure out this problem once 
and not 50 times and try to stitch them together and, and all of that. But anyway, I raise that because uh, I know you have done some thinking around pattern languages and stuff for service design and, you know, mm-hmm. um, and things like that. And I wonder if the, like where you find a hope for some kind of standardization or at least consistency across government's digital services. Yeah. Um, I mean, I first want to say that I am also really envious of the UK's digital presence and sometimes need to remind myself that I think the UK has got like a little over 65 million people. We're, we're in about yeah. that range and that, you know, that that's the size of like Medicare right. in the U.S. Like an equivalent number of people are just on Medicare in this one program in the U.S. Um, and you're right. Like we, we love states' rights. We love, you know. Like well, when I agree with the issue, then I do. Yeah. Else I'm a big yeah. federalist if I don't. You know, you know. I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> and so uh, we have kind of all of these all of these different expressions of the same thing in the U.S. Um, because we are trying to drive, you know, toward more and more local governance in in a lot of cases. The places that I see opportunity in the U.S. and because I don't think this model is going to go away for the U.S. Right. anytime soon is um, there are a number of of just solved problems. I think that as an industry, if we can, if we can move toward like we've solved this, we don't need to solve it again. I think we'll, we'll, we'll just make it easier to build really high quality digital services and it will be faster. For instance, some solved problems that we have are like um, login.gov has solved. How do we make a secure system for people to kind of sign in to uh, a public service? You know, what are all the things we need for identity proofing? What are kind of the the management systems we need for that? But still, uh, a lot of teams kind of get hung up on that part of the process, which is just a pattern that exists everywhere on the Internet. And, you know, from just from my perspective, is not worth my time as a designer, we solved this one, right. you know, but, but, it, but it's very difficult, you know, from a, from an implementation perspective and from an engineering perspective and often sucks up a lot of time in, in these projects where we need to create a public service where, you know, for better or worse, you're going to have to log in. It's got to be secure. Um, you know, so there are, there are patterns like that. There are patterns, um, like the uploader that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. you know, find me a government service that doesn't require proof of something about you, you know, <laughs> these are just sort of component parts that the experience should be very predictable. You know, uh, the, the patterns that we use for them should be more or less just sort of recognizable out of the box. And, and this, you know, is, is not just true in government. This is true across the internet. When we find a good pattern, there is a lot of leverage to be gained by by using something that people recognize. And they're like, ah, yes, this little hamburger button. I know, I know what to do with that. You know, um, and I think in in public services, there's a really big opportunity to kind of, um, you know, connect back to that that trust and predictability aspect of things where we're just, we're making it easy. This looks like the rest of the internet, you know, Mm -hmm. they're using all the time. Um, And therefore, like, you don't have to think about it. You can just use this and you can go back to your day because I'm sure your goal today was never like spend a lot of time on this.gov. 
you know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so I guess what I hear you saying is let's just start with the login page. That's just a little project for the login page for the for the government. And from there we'll see where we go. <laughs> sometimes sometimes that's where you should start. I <laughs> I, I always think it's going to take longer than you think to work on the login page. So right. maybe starting it early is not so bad. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, this is wonderful. Um, it's a, a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Where can we learn a little bit more about what you're up to? Sure. If you want to follow what I'm up to these days, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Genevieve Go. So Genevieve, G-A-U. And, you know, Nava is always hiring. We are, we are growing. We are adding really cool projects to work with states and the federal government. So if you want to check us out, we're navapbc.com slash careers, and you can join our team. It's been an unprecedented number of years, but certainly with the, <laughs> the, what's happened uh, in U.S. politics, uh, I absolutely appreciate the optimism that you're bringing to what the potential for government could be. So thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.